This podcast contains sensitive topics and discussions. Listener discretion is advised. One woman's terminal diagnosis leads her to search for death on her own terms and paves the way for national change. This is the Brittany Menard story. Megan, it's great to see you again. We just had a really great time last night on Surviving the Survivor. I know. I love Joel. And he talks about like all the cases that we want to talk about. He's got great guests. It's really a great forum for us. I really enjoyed that. Yes. And it's a pleasure that he keeps inviting us back. So hopefully we'll be series regulars on that show. It, it was really nice. I had a good time. I love doing events like that. Hopefully we can do more of them. Yeah. And we should do some on our own, actually. We've had some requests, so we should start thinking about our own. I agree. So, Megan, some of the themes we're discussing today have come up in a previous episode. However, I will tell you the story is quite different from any that we typically cover. Patrons, if you recall, at our one of our last happy hours, I floated the idea of doing this case because I just wasn't sure if it was the right fit for our audience. And they seemed really interested and they encouraged me to go ahead and do this episode. Now, I'm not going to lie, though, Megan, it, I was really unsure I would go back and forth not sure if it was relevant to our usual content and if our listeners would be interested. But at the end of the day, I was so taken by this story, I couldn't stop thinking about it. So I just had to get it out on paper. You said that it's one that we have similar themes that we've covered. Are you going to discuss the case later that we covered that it's kind of similar to where the themes are? It's similar to Betty Williams, if you recall that case. It came out uh, several episodes ago. You'll see why there's a few similarities. Yes. And as usual, I learned about this case through... Let's see how well you know me. A memoir. Absolutely. (laughs) Ding, ding, ding. I think everyone in the audience knows that by now, too. It's not just me, but okay. (laughs) That's a good trivia question, right? Right. I read a memoir written by Brittany's mom called Wild and a Precious Life, and this was written by Deborah Ziegler. I read this book several years ago when it first came out, and it was way before we started doing the podcast. Right. And I picked it up again. I do this often. I started reading it, and I say, you know what? This sounds a little familiar, and that's because I had read it before, but it just hit different this time. And that's why we're talking about it today. But I need to give a little bit of a trigger warning up front. We always talk about sensitive topics, but I want to give an additional warning up front today. This episode will contain conversations and information about suicide and terminal illness. Just in case these topics are triggering for some people, I just wanted to put that up front here. So extra listener discretion is advised for today's episode. For those of you that are still with us, let's go ahead and meet Brittany Menard. Brittany was born November 19, 1984 in Anaheim, California to Mother Deborah. Her father left when she was very young, and it was quite a contentious divorce, unfortunately, as many are. And her dad did visit her a little bit when she was very young, but unfortunately, his presence petered out pretty quickly, and Brittany didn't have any sort of relationship with him as she grew up. But Brittany and her mom were extremely close, and Deborah did everything to make sure that her daughter had a loving, stable upbringing. Now, Deborah worked hard as a single mom, and soon she and Brittany would move to a nice home in Orange County, California. Deborah worked as a salesperson, and she did very well climbing the ranks quite quickly. However, it was a bit of a difficult schedule when raising a child alone. 
So when Brittany was in middle school, Deborah decided to leave her sales job and become a science teacher at the school that her daughter attended. And although it was a pay cut, it enabled her to be more involved in Brittany's day-to-day life. Deborah also got remarried around this time, but unfortunately, it did not last long. And in fact, Brittany never even had a relationship with the man who was her stepdad for a short period. Oh, wow. Okay. So as much as maybe Deborah felt unlucky in love, things were going good for them. Brittany was excelling in school and keeping herself really busy. She was into ice skating and cheerleading. She had many friends and many interests. As a teenager, Deborah says Brittany was a risk taker who absolutely loved adventure and excitement. And as Brittany got older, particularly into her teenage years, her relationship with her mom began to strain. And we hear this happens a lot, unfortunately, with teenage girls and their moms. And, you know, I don't think it was anything terrible. It was just the usual discontent that comes as children get older and try to find themselves. And I'm sure it was hard for Deborah. You know, she was working in the same school that Brittany was in. She may have been more involved than Brittany wanted her to at times. I was going to say, I'm sure that was hard for Brittany, too, to have a mom always around at school. Yes. But what would help is Deborah met another man around this time named Gary. Now, he was a friend of a friend, and he was several years older than Deborah. But the two hit it off and became very serious. And in fact, Brittany liked him. She approved of him, and the two got along very well. During high school, Brittany worked at an upscale golf club, and she spent a lot of time with her friends. She actually started college early. She was having some difficulty in high school. So her mom petitioned her to finish high school by taking an exam. And then off she went to community college. You mean she was having difficulty with her studies, like her academics? Yeah, it seemed like it. It's not exactly clear if it was social or academic. Okay. But it was explained as just high school wasn't really for her. Okay. So Brittany started attending a nearby community college and she was very independent and she was kind of wise beyond her years. So she decided it was time to move on her own. So she left her mother's home and she moved into an apartment with a roommate. Now, after obtaining her associate's degree, she then enrolled at the University of California, Berkeley. And there she would study psychology and graduate in 2006. Like most of us, she was just not sure what she wanted to do after graduation. And she worked several jobs, kind of getting a feel for things. She worked in sales. She was a receptionist, a nanny, And then she went to grad school for audiology for a short time, but realized it wasn't for her. She just really wasn't sure what she wanted to do. She had so many interests and such a zest for life that she loved just kind of dabbling in a little bit of everything. So Brittany spent the next few years traveling while she was trying to figure this all out. Did you take a gap year, as they call it, and travel? No, of course not. My dad would never have helped me subsidize that. I had to get a job immediately after graduation. That was made very clear to me by my father. So no gap year. Yeah, Brittany was very fortunate that her mother shared her love for traveling and was able to help her finance that. And she didn't just travel a little bit, Megan. I mean, Brittany was going to Nepal. She went to Vietnam. She went to Cambodia. She went to Costa Rica. And she wasn't just hanging out on beaches and relaxing. She would go volunteer in orphanages. She would immerse herself in the local culture. She would go hiking and climbing. She actually climbed Kilimanjaro. Not a lot of people can say that. That's unbelievable. Yeah, she was pretty cool. She was doing a lot. In April of 2007, when she was 23 years old, she met a man named Dan Diaz, who was 35 years old. The two met on Match.com, got along very well. He lived nearby and worked in market research. Other than that, I don't have much information about Dan, but he'll come up a lot throughout the story. Okay. The two dated on and off for some time. 
but they weren't serious probably because she, you know, she was only 23. He was 35. Maybe she wasn't ready to settle down. She was doing a lot of traveling, but they would keep in touch a little bit here and there. After coming back from her travels, Brittany returned to graduate school and she got her master's in education in 2010 from the University of California, Irvine School of Education. She and Dan then started dating again, and this time they were taking their relationship serious. And it worked out because Dan proposed in May of 2012. The two would get married a few months later on September 29th before heading out on a 10-day honeymoon to Patagonia. Now, this is a great time in Brittany's life. The couple, they were very happy. They were planning for their future. They just bought a home in Northern California that they were renovating. They had a beagle dog and a new puppy that they named Charlie. I believe it was a Great Dane. You could see pictures online. A beautiful pup. And Brittany continued to travel. Dan worked full time and he spent a lot of time working on the home. You know, she was very independent. A lot of times when she traveled, even throughout the time after college, she would go herself. She had no problem traveling alone, which is super cool. That almost doesn't surprise me, though. I feel like, just so you know, as an only child and only children can be a little bit more independent. So that that kind of makes sense to me or fits with only only children. Yeah, I didn't think of it like that. That does make sense. She was used to yeah. not really having a companion going at it herself. Yeah. Yeah. She was also tutoring a little bit. She would travel. She would come back and tutor. And as I mentioned, things seemed to be very happy for her at this time. But she was experiencing bouts of depression and insomnia. And in general, she just wasn't feeling well. In around 2013, Brittany began getting severe headaches and migraines. And she would get these from time to time, but it got to a point where it was so intense that she would often vomit and her only relief would be sitting in a warm shower until the migraine passed. Mm. And so this was affecting her sleep and that was affecting you know, her daily life. Mm-hmm. So at the urging of her husband and likely her mother, she went to see a neurologist. The neurologist said it was likely just stress and hormones and she was prescribed injectable pain medications in order to deal with the severe headaches. She was not given an MRI or CT scan or anything at the time. Brittany decided to also make a lifestyle change. She started avoiding wine and caffeine. She was also eating clean to try to help the pain. And in fact, she was trying to prepare her body for getting pregnant because her and Dan were ready to grow their family. Everything would change for the couple on New Year's Eve, December 31st, 2013. Now, Brittany and Dan took a trip to the place where they had gotten married, and they were getting ready to go to dinner and to have a nice celebration together. But unfortunately, Brittany got one of her headaches, and it was so bad that not only could they not go to dinner, Dan took her to the emergency room. At the hospital, they did give Brittany a CT scan given that her pain was so severe, and the scan revealed a shadow on her brain. And as this was a smaller hospital that didn't have an MRI, She had to be transported to a larger hospital, which was several miles away. She was told at this time that she would be admitted and staying the night. And Megan, this turned out to be a good thing because she ended up having a seizure while awaiting her tests. Wow. The doctors were rushing to figure out what was going on, but they were having a hard time making a diagnosis, especially because Brittany's pain was just so bad they couldn't figure out what was causing it. They did put her on IV pain medications in order to keep her comfortable. The doctors then ordered what is called a functional MRI. Now, this is where Brittany would be awake, completing various tasks while they watched her brain activity. This would allow them to identify regions that were linked to critical functions such as speaking, moving, and planning. And of course, they were doing this to determine if there was any correlation between the brain activation and the various tasks that she was performing. Okay. Now, after being in the hospital for 48 hours and going through a battery of tests, 
Brittany finally got some answers. Brittany was told that she had a brain tumor, and doctors suspected that it had been growing for some time. Sorry, when they say some time, I mean, how long does that mean? Is this something that could have been caught with an MRI, or I, I just wonder? They told her they suspected that it was growing for 7 to 10 years. Oh my gosh, wow. So, okay. a very long time. And at this point, it was quite large, and it was increasing pressure on her brain, which is what had been causing all of the migraines and the pain. Okay. The tumor had also invaded surrounding brain tissue. A biopsy was needed to be 100% sure of the diagnosis, but it seemed clear to all that this news was not positive. Mm. The family quickly mobilized and worked to get Brittany transferred to a hospital that specialized in neurosurgery because it became clear that she was going to need brain surgery. So they transferred her to one of the highest rated hospitals for neurology, the Brain Tumor Research Center at UCSF in San Francisco. Brittany was scheduled to have a craniotomy to reduce the pressure, but doctors would also discuss scheduling another surgery soon after so they could try to get some of the tumor out, but without risking any of her skills. This isn't something they could rush into. They really had to make sure that they were being as precise as possible because obviously when dealing with the brain, there's no margin of error. No. The craniotomy took about eight hours and doctors were able to remove about 45% of the tumor tissue. And brain surgery is extremely difficult to recover from, so Brittany had a long, painful road ahead of her. While it may have seen that getting 45% of the tumor was good news, she was told, unfortunately, that the surgery revealed that the tumor had tentacles, also known as roots, and could not be completely removed. So I can't imagine how awful it must have been to come out of such a tough surgery only to find out that over half of the tumor could never be removed because of these tentacles. Yeah, this, I mean, this, this really is awful. Deborah, Gary, and Dan took turns taking care of Brittany as she was in constant pain and just kept saying she wanted to die. And she kept saying to her mom, mom, I'm dying. Megan, in a way she was. The tumor would never go away. And although doctors had been able to remove some of it, it would grow back and eventually it would take over her neurofunctions not to mention the intense pain that it continued to cause her. I mean, did they tell her it was terminal at this point? Do we know? Does she? Is this just her thinking and kind of seeing forward? Or did the doctors actually say, like, this is terminal? That's a good question. According to Deborah, you know, the doctor skirted around it because Brittany was a healthy, beautiful young woman. And Brittany said to them, kind of enough of the bullshit. Tell me what's going on. Yeah. And she yeah. made them tell her and they said, yes, this will kill you. It's just a matter of how long. Time. Okay. But they also said there are options and there's no reason to give up hope just yet. But Brittany's pain was unbearable. So unbearable, Megan, that she already had started doing a lot of research on palliative care and physician-assisted suicide. She was particularly interested in what was going on in Oregon. They had something called the Death with Dignity Act. Now, a few states had similar laws, but Oregon was the best option because it was close by, much closer than some of the others, being that they were in Northern California. Right. And this may seem drastic to some, but Brittany knew that dying from a brain tumor would be long and painful. As I mentioned, she was a healthy young woman. So from the neck down, her organs would likely continue to fight and continue functioning and her heart would continue to beat. But the pain in her head would not likely go away. And her research revealed a future that absolutely terrified her. She 
she came to learn that patients with brain tumors become restless, confused, can't balance well, and have hallucinations and seizures in addition to the pain. Right. But like most doctors, her doctors were pushing ahead for the second surgery. But it would be a little while till they could even address that because there was a long recovery that was necessary from the first intense procedure. During this time, luckily, she felt well enough to travel and spend time with family and friends. But everyone started noticing a distinct difference in Brittany's personality. It was almost as if she lost all her empathy and compassion, and she was incredibly insensitive to the people around her. And while this may have been off-putting to those that loved her and wanted to help her, This is not uncommon for victims of traumatic brain injury to experience these personality shifts. In fact, in hindsight, her mother had noticed personality shifts dating back almost as long as a decade. So while Brittany was trying to get back to some semblance of a normal life, about four months after the surgery, it became clear that there weren't many options going forward. Was Brittany offered radiation, chemo, any of these options? Yeah, she was. But unfortunately, she was told there would only be about a 30% chance of success due to the location of the tumor. Along with that, Brittany was now told that a second surgery wouldn't be possible if she didn't at least try the chemo in order to shrink the tumor first. So she was stuck trying to make this decision. In order to have the second surgery, she would have to do chemo and radiation. But she knew about chemo's horrific side effects, and she knew that her chances were so low. So because of the fact that there was only a 30% success rate and because of the side effects, she decided that she was not going to go ahead with the chemo and radiation. Rather, Brittany began seriously thinking about taking the death with dignity option that was offered in Oregon. But to do that, Megan, she would have to become a resident of that state. Mm -hmm. One of the criteria is that you're a resident of the state that is offering. Right. Which means establishing, I guess, residency for about six months or a year in some places. I would assume six months would be enough. Yeah. So Brittany, she jumped into action as, as she always did. She knew that, you know, now she had something to focus on and she was pushing ahead. Of course, this was extremely hard for her family, but everyone was doing their best to support her. Right. So Brittany and Dan met with a medical team in Oregon and they started looking for a home. They were looking for a home in which Brittany could live out the rest of her days surrounded by beauty and love. Now, part of this medical team included social workers. She had to get second opinions. They had to make sure that she was competent to make this decision, both in writing and on video. Mm -hmm. So this isn't something that is just being given out easily. There was a very long process, which, which is why she started so quickly. In July of 2014, Brittany, Dan, and her parents moved to Oregon, and they would meet with the palliative team often to try to figure out the plan of action. She was seeing a therapist as part of the requirements for death with dignity law, Mm -hmm. and her therapist urged her to decide on a date of her death. Now, the therapist said that this would help her stop obsessing over when this was going to happen. So the suggestion was, let's put a date on the calendar. And that date could always be moved. Nothing set in stone. Brittany chose the date of November 1st, 2014. Now, this would be just before her 30th birthday and after Dan and her anniversary. And this made Brittany feel like she was somewhat in control of what was going on. And there wasn't so much of a question mark about what was going to happen. She felt very comfortable knowing that there was a date on the calendar and she could make plans around it. That was the whole point of putting the date right, the suggestion. Mm -hmm. It makes sense. Brittany spent the next few months hiking around beautiful Oregon forests, and she had many family and friends come visit and stay with her. 
But as much as she was trying to make the best of her last few months, she was experiencing severe seizures often, and she was on painkillers 24-7 just to be functional. And as you could imagine, there were extreme side effects from these painkillers. This is a very difficult life. This is very hard. It would be very hard for me to imagine having to be subjected to such constant pain. Mm Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, her situation was gaining national attention. Mm-hmm. A nonprofit organization wanted to make a film to educate Americans about the need for terminally ill citizens to have choices. So Brittany was working with this organization and she made a film that was later published on YouTube. And within just a few days, it had over three million views. People magazine also got wind of what was going on. And they did an article on Brittany called My Decision to Die. And this was on October 6, 2014, just a few weeks before her death. Brittany was on their cover with Dan, and the story went viral. Brittany continued. Somehow she found the strength to now do an interview with CBS. She went on to do interviews with various news stations because she wanted people to not only understand the death with dignity and try to advocate for the rights of terminally ill individuals, I feel like she wanted people to see how coherent she was Mm -hmm. and that she was able to make this decision. She also prepared video testimony for legislators. She wanted people to have the choice when faced with terminal illness. I want to read a little bit from the video testimony because it's very powerful. I'm heartbroken that I had to leave behind my home, my community, and my friends in California. But I am dying, and I refuse to lose my dignity. I refuse to subject myself and family to purposeless, prolonged pain and suffering at the hands of an incurable disease. Death with dignity laws authorize the medical practice of aid in dying. They give mentally competent, terminally ill adults the option to request life-ending medication that they can choose to ingest if their dying process becomes unbearable. The freedom in this patient right is choice. She continues, people have asked me whether I explored the medical practice of palliative or terminal sedation. Some claim it is an equally gentle alternative for patients whose symptoms cannot be controlled. The procedure involves drugging the patient into a coma. Nutrition and fluids are withheld until the person dies from the disease or dehydration. No one can tell when that would happen, but each patient is different and deserves the autonomy and freedom to make this personal choice for themselves. I can't imagine what the experience would be like. I may be minimally conscious, still suffering, and unable to move or speak, and that terrifies me. Death with dignity is a much swifter and peaceful way to pass. Logic motivates me to choose this for myself instead. One other small piece I want to read. I cannot change the fact that I am dying, but I am living my final days to the fullest, spending time enjoying family, friends, and the great outdoors, and I am preparing to experience the best possible death. Achieving some control over my passing is very important to me. Knowing that I can leave this life with dignity allows me to focus on living. It has provided me enormous peace of mind. Every one of us will die. We should not have to suffer excruciating pain, shame, or a prolonged dying process. Wow. That. Lastly. Okay, there's more. It's actually much longer. I'm just taking out little pieces. She ends her video testimony by saying, Every terminally ill American deserves the choice to die with dignity. Let a movement begin here, now. Access to this choice lies in your hands. Freedom from prolonged pain and suffering is the most basic human right. Please make death with dignity an American healthcare choice. Wow. Keep in mind, Megan, 
she was less than three weeks away from her own death and she was in excruciating pain and she's spending her last days trying to help other people. I mean, she wanted to make it meaningful. She wanted to, you know, open the door for other people or help them. I mean, it's it's really she's she's a brave. She was a very brave young woman. Unbelievably brave. By the end of October 2014, Brittany was nearing the date that she had penciled in November 1st. And her tumor was causing her a severe downturn. She would often fall and was experiencing a lot of side effects from all of the medications she was taking. Now, her family and friends had hoped that she would change her mind and move her death date back. But Brittany decided to keep her original plan. She wanted to die peacefully in her new home in Oregon, surrounded by those she loved. On October 31st, her parents and Dan, along with six of Brittany's closest friends, spent the day together hiking and spending time outdoors before having a nice dinner. Then on November 1st, as planned, surrounded by her loved ones, Brittany drank the medication that had been prescribed to her, and she drifted into what seemed like a deep sleep before her heart stopped. She passed away peacefully, surrounded by her loved ones, just as she had planned to. After her passing, Brittany's family continued to lobby in what is known as the right to die movement. But they face a lot of backlash, particularly from the Catholic Church and other religious institutions. In fact, two days after Brittany's death, the Vatican's top ethicist made a public comment condemning her, saying, quote, assisted suicide is a reprehensible absurdity. And Pope Francis even made a statement days later saying that the right to die movement was a false sense of compassion and a sin against God. In response, Brittany's mom made a public statement, and this statement was read on MSNBC and other national news outlets. Many media sources picked this up, and I would like to read a few parts of it, but I urge you all to read her statement because Brittany's family is trying to heal from this tremendous loss, and then they're hearing people criticizing. So for Brittany's family, it was very important to make a public response to these comments. I'm going to read a few parts of it. Okay. She says the imposition of, quote, belief on a human rights issue is wrong. To censor a personal choice as reprehensible because it does not comply with someone else's belief is immoral. My 29-year-old daughter's choice to die gently rather than suffer physical and mental and intense pain does not deserve to be labeled as reprehensible by strangers a continent away who do not know her or the particulars of her situation. She continues, such strong public criticism from people we do not know, have never met, is more than a slap in the face. It is like kicking us as we struggle to draw breath. I urge Americans to think for themselves. Make your wishes clear while you are competent. Make sure that you have all the options spelled out for you if you are diagnosed with an incurable, debilitating, painful disease. Do your own research. Ask your family to research and face the harsh reality with you. Ask your doctor to be brutally honest with you. Then make your personal choice about how you will proceed. This is your choice. That's a great response. It was. It's a beautiful response. And as I said, there is more. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I just wanted to take out a few parts to give you the gist of what she was saying. I'm glad because as she points out, the tremendous loss and pain that they had to suffer was exacerbated by someone labeling her daughter's behavior as reprehensible. The family does not deserve that at all. So I, I am glad she came out on record with this response. And I agree. And I think everyone's entitled to their own opinion, but I don't think that they're necessarily entitled to share their opinion with a grieving family. 
You can have your own opinion. And if that's not for you, then you don't do that. Exactly. Look, I think that was really hard for Britney's family to hear and really unfair, to be perfectly honest. However, I would like to say that, you know, the Pope and the Catholic point of view is if someone does die by suicide, then they're not going to go to heaven. So, you know, you can't save their soul. And so even though it seems very harsh and, uh, you know, maybe some of us don't understand it, there is also a compassion in that point of view that they believe, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're religious and this is your belief, you're believing that the compassionate way is to save someone's soul. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's the argument. And so it does seem very cruel on the surface. I would not certainly have appreciated it. And I'm glad that Brittany's mother did respond in that way because it's, you know, this is a personal thing. Later on, we're going to discuss this, but there's a counterpoint of view. And I think it's really important to try to understand where both sides are at least coming from and try to approach it with some type of open mind. I agree. And that's what we always try to do. What, Regardless of what side we fall on, we always try our best to acknowledge the other point of view and to try to understand the other point of view. So thank you for bringing that up. Brittany's parents and Dan also testified on behalf of California's proposal End of Life Option Act before the Senate Health Committee. And they were successful. The legislation got passed in 2015. Now, this law allows individuals who have serious life-threatening illnesses with prognosis of six months or less to request prescription medication from their doctors to end their life. Of course, there are some stipulations. To receive the aid in dying drug, a person must be 18 years or older. They must be a resident of California. They also must have a terminal disease that cannot be cured or reversed and that is expected to result in death within six months. Very importantly, Megan, they must have the capacity to make medical decisions and not have impaired judgment due to a mental disorder. Yeah. And the last important part of this is they must have the physical ability to take and ingest the drug. They cannot have a third party administer the drug. Yeah, that makes sense as well. The criteria is it's strict because they're trying to ensure that if this is done, this is, you know, a decision that's been extremely well thought out and carried out by the person who wants that. So they they are trying to protect the process here and not make it so that anyone decides mm -hmm. that they're going to take this option. Yes. So I can appreciate the way in which they're trying to allow people to take these options in a very, very responsible and well thought out way. Yeah. And I think we could both agree that we wouldn't want to live in a country that was just handing out these medications to help people end their lives without having these strict criteria, because some people are not capable of making those decisions. Yeah, I agree. You know, I have to tell you, this is a really hard question. Where do you draw the line? I don't know the answer to that. But I do know that I appreciate the process put in place to try to help people make these decisions. Also, I think if someone's really suffering, they're going to find a way, unfortunately, to end their life. And I would prefer it be safe and medically controlled than something that is more harmful. Yeah, of course. Uh, and as peaceful for that person as possible. So Brittany's situation clearly was a horrific one. And there were certainly no good answers or options for her and her family. And I would say that when most people think of assisted suicide, they probably think about how we handle maybe like sick or dying pets when they're euthanized by a doctor. Well, it's very different. So I want to talk about the difference between euthanasia and assisted suicide. Okay. So as of now, euthanasia of humans is illegal in most of the U.S., but it is legal in other parts of the world. So let's break this down here. 
So in euthanasia, the physician administers a fatal dose of a suitable drug to the patient. Euthanasia can be voluntary or involuntary. When euthanasia is conducted with consent, it's considered voluntary. And this is currently legal in Australia, Belgium, Canada, Colombia, Luxembourg, a few others such as Spain, New Zealand, Switzerland. Now, in assisted suicide, by contrast, the physician supplies the lethal drug, but the patient administers it themselves. So there are a few definitions and interpretations, but one that we see commonly used is, quote, intentionally helping a person take their own life by providing drugs for self-administration at that person's voluntary and competent request. Some definitions will include the stipulation in order to relieve persistent or unstoppable suffering. Either way, physician-assisted suicide is legal or under court ruling in 11 jurisdictions. Now, this includes California, Colorado, District of Columbia, Hawaii, Montana, Maine, New Jersey, New Mexico, Oregon, Vermont, and Washington. This conversation has been going on for some time because it was more than 20 years ago that the Supreme Court held that there is no fundamental right to assisted suicide in the U.S. Constitution, finding instead that there exists for the state's, quote, unqualified interest in the preservation of human life, in preventing suicide, and in studying, identifying, and treating its causes. In fact, Megan, there's also a long-standing division on physician-assisted suicide that has recently resurfaced at the American Medical Association, known as AMA. Their stance was that permitting physicians to engage in assisted suicide would ultimately cause more harm than good. Physician-assisted suicide is fundamentally incompatible with the physician's role as a healer, would be difficult or impossible to control, and would pose serious societal risks. They continue, instead of engaging in assisted suicide, physicians must aggressively respond to the needs of patients at the end of life. There is still, to this day, Megan, an ongoing debate over stance and terminology. And they even pointed to Canada as an example of where it was legalized, saying that, quote, it has become a runaway contagion with over 4,000 deaths last year. And that was in 2019, they said that. So, Megan, as we're wrapping up the episode, I think it's important to talk about the argument on both sides. There are two resources for our listeners to look into if they are interested to gather more information on this topic. If you would like to learn more about the Right to Die movement, you can visit thebritneyfund.org. Not only can you learn more, you can also send a letter to her family. You can donate. You can hear similar stories. And this is an initiative of Compassion and Choices, which is a nonprofit that's based out of Oregon. That nonprofit works solely on this issue, trying to educate the public about the importance of documenting end-of-life values and priorities. They also advocate for expanded choices and work to defend existing end-of-life options and they're one of the organizations that worked very closely with Brittany at, you know, towards the end of her life. For those people who are unsure or just want to learn more about the argument against assisted suicide, they can check out Americans United for Life. This organization believe that assisted suicide goes against the prevailing consensus that states have the duty to protect life. People in this camp believe that assisted suicide places already vulnerable people at greater risks while failing to protect the integrity and ethics of the medical profession. But regardless of what you believe, as the AMA points out, 
quote, supporters and opponents share a fundamental commitment to values of care, compassion, respect, and dignity. They diverge in drawing different moral conclusions from those underlying values in equally good faith. At the end of the day, people on both sides of the issue are fighting for the same thing. They just have a different belief in how to get there. It's an interesting point to kind of conclude with. It's not that anyone's being malicious here. It's just, you know, very different approaches and very, you know, different values. It's very hard to speak to unless you've been in the situation. I can tell you, you know this, and so does James, but my father died of pancreatic cancer. And it was very shocking when he was diagnosed. And pancreatic cancer is a very rapid deterioration, but he was offered the option of chemotherapy. And of course, I'm like, we got to do it. You know, I'm I'm a fighter. I'm like, we're going to power through this. We're going to do it. But you know, at the end of the day, the doctor said, this is going to be kind of painful and it's going to prolong your life a little bit, but you're not going to live. You're going to succumb to this. And my dad said, absolutely not. He said, I want to go home. I want to spend my time with you, with my family. And I, I don't want to subject myself to this kind of pain going forward. And I was incredibly hurt and annoyed by it at first. But I, I totally understand why he made that decision. And you have to come around to respect it. And you know, I supported my father and it'd be really hard for me to have someone having criticized his choice, especially given what we were all going through. But it is easy to have a kind of a thought. You think a certain way about something, but it does change when you are placed in that situation. You have to experience it. At least that was my own experience. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I would bet a lot of our listeners could relate to that. Yeah. And that also shows the other side, you know, the family. And the book I read was written by Brittany's mother. So I was able to read a lot about that. But this episode didn't focus on that. So thank you for bringing that up, because this isn't about just the patient. It's about the patient's family as well. And I hope that today's conversation has helped you maybe understand other people's choices. And hopefully we can all just be a little kinder to each other and respect people's beliefs and values. But either way, you know, I look forward to hearing our listeners' thoughts on today's show because, as I said, it's a little different and I wasn't sure about it. Amy, I know that you weren't sure about today's episode and I know that you were a little apprehensive, but I'm really glad you covered this. I think it's a really significant issue. And especially with our listeners, I think that they're going to appreciate, you know, the various sides of this debate as well. So thank you for bringing this episode to us today. And if you or anyone you know needs help, please dial 988, which is the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Now, this lifeline provides 24-7 free and confidential support for people in distress, prevention and crisis resources for you or your loved ones, and best practices for professionals in the United States. Before we head out today, we'd like to take this opportunity to answer a question from one of our supporters. The question is, if you could teach one non-crime related class, what would it be? Nothing. (laughs) (laughs) No, nothing? Okay. Actually, I have an answer. I'll tell you what I I would teach probably. Okay. But I have no expertise, so let's just say that off the record. But I would want to teach something like cinematic and movie related, like, you know, a study of like, I don't know, the evolution of certain genres of movies. I'd probably actually teach like a horror movie class, which we do offer at our school a similar course. But yeah, I think it would just be some type of cinematic experience. That's pretty cool. I don't really have a good answer, but maybe it would be fun to teach like a gym class, like a fitness class or something like that. Although I can't see myself doing that. I don't have that personality for that. I could see you doing it. You could probably teach like a jazzercise class. 
Yes, I could. I was going to say, I don't think that, that would be. But you know what? We also offer a class at our school that's about wine. Oh, <laughs> yes. I could maybe see you teaching that class. Yes, no, maybe. Honestly, I love so much what I teach that I can't think of anything that I'd prefer to teach. But that's a really fun question. I like when things get a little more lighthearted because we're dealing with such heavy material. We did also talk about, you said that you thought it'd be really cool to teach a class in podcasting, which is more media related oh, than true. necessarily crime. That's a good point. So podcasting in anything, it doesn't have to be podcasting in crime. Yeah. So that's my answer. Thank you, Megan. You're that welcome. Is, that is my answer. I will teach a class in podcasting. I would say parenting, but I'm pretty sure I'm doing it all wrong. So I'm not going to say that. <laughs> <Stop> <laughs> it. All right. Well, thank, thank you for you. the fun question. Yes. Thank you so much for that lighthearted question. And thank you all for listening. And we will catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. For more information, visit patreon.com slash women in crime. Sources for today include Wild and Precious Life by Deborah Ziegler, People.com, DeathWithDignity.org, the American Medical Association, and CompassionAndChoices.org.